welcome to Posting Up, the Washington Post NBA podcast. I'm your host, Tim Bontemps, National NBA Editor for the Washington Post. Coming to you today with the Southwest Division Preview. Going to take a look at five teams in the division. The Dallas Mavericks, the Houston Rockets, the Memphis Grizzlies, the New Orleans Pelicans, and the San Antonio Spurs. Talking about each of those teams are Tim McMahon from ESPN.com, Jonathan Fagan from the Houston Chronicle, Chris Harrington from the Memphis Commercial Appeal, Scott Kushner from the from the New Orleans Advocate, and Jeff McDonald from the San Antonio Express News. Hopefully you guys will enjoy it. It should be an informative listen on you know, a pretty interesting division with five teams that all for a variety of reasons have a lot going on this year. So hopefully you enjoy it. But with that, let's start this off with my conversation with Tim McMahon about the Dallas Mavericks. All right, Timmy, thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Uh, Mavs camp going to start in a couple days, and kind of the the thing that's been hanging over the team for a while now is um, the the potential future of Dirk Nowitzki. Uh, you know, he's said recently his health is going to determine whether he keeps playing past this year or not. But at least as camp gets going, what what do you think the chances are that this is his last year? Do you think there's a chance he maybe comes back for for the final year of his deal next season? Okay, first of all, Bon Temps, let me make one thing very clear. I will neither be professional nor polite during this podcast years. Why okay? would I expect anything different than that? Okay, uh, I just wanted to you know, establish that. I know you've probably got a much more prim and proper audience at the Washington Post than the podcast that we've done before, but uh, I am still Bam McMahon here. And as Bam McMahon, I would point out to you that when a guy signs a freaking two-year contract, do you think he wants to play two more years? Sometimes. I mean, come on. He signed a two-year contract. There is a team option to kind of let the mass off the hook if this is it. But basically, unless his body betrays him or, I mean, it's just a horrendously painful season. Uh, and by the way, he understands kind of the state of the Mavericks. But uh, unless one of those two things happens, he plans on coming back now. If the Achilles that bothered him early last season knocked him out for the first two months of the season, basically it took him a while to get back to, you know, being the kind of player he is even in his in the late stage of his career. You know, if that's something that's an issue all throughout this season and it's just misery getting on the floor and he feels like he's, you know, dragging himself up and down the court and can't contribute, then he probably he probably calls it a career. But, you know, his intents to play a couple more years, that's certainly his preference. He's said a hundred times that he's going to play as long as it's fun for him. And at this point, he understands he's not going to be contending. Um, so fun for him is playing well, contributing, and, you know, being around a group of guys that he enjoys being around. He's kind of embraced this uh, mentor role with guys like Harrison Barnes and now Dennis Smith Jr., guys who have a chance to be kind of next in line to carry the torch for the Mavericks. Well, certainly, I certainly hope he plays for at least a couple more years because it's still fun. It's still fun to watch him play even at, you know, 38 or 39. I mean, to go out and, you know, drop 20 occasionally and still be able to, to be effective is, is pretty fun to see. So I certainly hope he lasts another year, but you mentioned Dennis Smith. Um, you know, he, he really looks like he's got a chance to finally be the bridge to the future that the Mavs have been looking for, for a while. Um, you know, I know they were pretty happy when he was there at the eighth pick. Um, how happy how, when he was there at the ninth pick? Oh, that's true. Good, good call by you, buddy. Uh, how uh, how much uh, how much lease do you think he's going to get 
um, from from Rick Carlisle to to kind of play through rookie mistakes and and learn on the job. You know that that's really the fascinating question, and and uh, I, I wrote a story on Dennis Smith Jr. in Las Vegas, and and sat down and talked to Rick, and hey, Rick's throwing out stuff like it's our job to develop him into being a franchise cornerstone, and you know Rick's saying he understands what's in the best interest of this franchise, and that's right now uh, really making Dennis Smith Jr.'s development. Uh, an absolute priority and that to me means that you're letting him play through mistakes that you know what if a 19 year old kid makes some bonehead plays in crunch time and cost you uh, a few games throughout the course of the season you live with that because you know really the only way for him to to learn in those situations is uh, through trial and error so that's the plan um and we will see (laughs) right you know rick rick uh be careful how you phrase this if you're face-to-face with Rick, but he does not necessarily have a reputation for being easy on young players. Right. He does not necessarily have a reputation for being easy on point guards. Right. Uh, Dennis Smith Jr., as you know, happens to be both of those. Right. Now, and he's a rather Rick, headstrong young man, too, which doesn't, which certainly factors into that, too. Right. And, and uh, hey, Rick obviously has is, is made it, a, a priority to develop a, ra- a relationship with a kid. They spent a lot of time together this summer. Uh, you know, the, Rick actually lives in South Carolina during the summer. So with Dennis Smith Jr. being a North Carolina native, spent a lot of time there. That was actually convenient uh, for Rick. Um, but you know what? <laughs> Rick will clap back on the whole hard on point guards, hard on young players thing by saying, well, Yogi Ferrell's awfully glad that he met me. Right. Of course, <laughs> Yogi Ferrell also got Western Conference Rookie of the Month and demoted to, to the bench on the same day. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't anticipate that happen. That happening with Dennis Smith Jr. unless things really go haywire, though. Like I said, this is a guy they truly believe has the potential, and it is potential at this point, obviously, to be the next face of the franchise. And you know what? If you if you gave Mark Cuban true serum, uh, he would probably admit that probably the best thing would be to get another, you know, at least mid lottery pick to pair with him next year. So if he makes mistakes in close games that cost you some wins, so be it. Well, that actually I was going to ask you that later, but I'll just I'll just ask it now. Do you do you think Mark Cuban you know, for a long time he talked about? you know, always wanting to be in the playoffs and he wasn't necessarily ready to commit to a full rebuild. Do you think now that, you know, Dirk is kind of really in the twilight officially and they do have Dennis Smith, who's got a chance to be um, that kind of foundational piece they've been lacking. Do you think he's more open to committing to a full rebuild like that and really trying to get another one or two elite young guys and maybe he would have been a year or two ago? Yeah. Um, you know, the kind of the, the, the whispers are, that Wesley Matthews could be moved. You know, we'll, we'll see about that. Um, but there's no question that this thing shifted into into youth movement, uh, which is a polite way to say rebuild mode, uh, after the All-Star break last year before the trade deadline when, you know, they basically gave Darren Williams a big fat check and say, hey, good luck with it. You know, go sign with a contender. And they uh, were able to unload Andrew Bogut in the Nerlens Noel deal and, and let the Sixers pay him uh, you know, the buyout. But you know, that, at that point, they they replaced two veterans, uh, you know, two accomplished veterans, with a rookie point guard and a uh, what was Nerlens last year, twenty two, twenty three right. year old center. So I mean, 
and, and look, they were they were trying to win at that point, but they were trying to win with young players who were going to be around for the foreseeable future. And, and I think that's kind of the thing now. You know, are, are they going out there tanking with Harrison Barnes? No, but Harrison Barnes is certainly a guy who can be, uh, uh, you know, a, if not your number one guy, at least a foundation piece for a long, long time. You know, Seth Curry's in the last year of his contract, but he's a young player who I think has potential to be here for a while, depending on how things work out uh, next summer and what the market looks like for him. You know, Yogi Ferrell, same type thing. Obviously, Dennis Smith Jr. And, and there's no question that, aside from Dirk, this thing has certainly shifted uh, into a youth movement. And as far as rebuilding goes, I mean, hey, you know, you can embrace it or you can just uh, understand that it's the reality. I mean, look at the Western Conference. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know, it's not like the Mavericks have, well, you know, we'd like to be the sixth seed. No, it's not an option. Right. I mean, they, they will try to win games, and they're not going to be as good as the vast majority uh, of these teams in the Western Conference. So the, the rebuilding part will kind of take care of itself. Yeah, no, I, I think that I think that's fair. Um, and and you, met, you mentioned Barnes a couple times there. He had a really nice year last year. Uh, in the first year of a four-year max contract with the Mavs, you know, when he signed that, there were some people that kind of questioned whether or not he would live up to that deal. I think, I think he did last year really pretty strongly. Um, what, what do you think is the, the thing that, that he and the Mavs are hoping he can do this year to kind of build on the success he had a year ago? Yeah, well, the, the big question last year was pretty much can he dribble? Can he create his own shot? And then he was, you know, as far as high volume ISO guys, and they basically gave him the, you know, Dirk uh, 2011 playbook last year. As far as high volume ISO guys in the league, he was one of the more efficient ones. I mean, he, he was consistently uh, good at creating his own shot and, and getting buckets, uh, including times early in the season when that was about the only thing the Mavs had going when Dirk was either limping around or, or watching uh, from the bench with the, that sore Achilles. Now, kind of the, the next – and by the way, one guy deserves a lot of credit there. Obviously, Barnes does, but God's sham God, uh, who the Mavericks brought in as a player development coach and, and has, has worked extensively with Barnes and you know got a long-term deal to stay in Dallas when there's some interest from teams, other teams in the league. Uh, you know, that, that's the guy who, you know, he's basically his ball handling coach. And, and you know, you, you can see the work that he's done if you watch his struggles and the limited touches in those situations with Golden State and then saw what he did last year. He's obviously uh, made drastic improvements there. So you hope that continues if you're the Mavericks. And then I think the, the two areas where you really look at and say, okay, these are the next step for Barnes or he needs to become a better passer. 1.5 assists for a guy who's getting so many ISO opportunities, that's not enough. Uh, and he needs to get to the line more often. Again, that many ISO opportunities, only 3.6 free throws per game last year. Um, you know, the, the best way for him to uh, you know, further improve that efficiency is to get to the line more often, you know, get those freebies. And as much as he's – as many ISOs as they're calling for him, you know, you'd like to see him five, six, seven trips uh, per game, and certainly that that assist total getting closer to three or four per game. Yeah, that would definitely uh, that would definitely be a big step for him. And you could even see, I mean, you, you mentioned God Sham God. You could even see the the, the Mavericks are here early uh, in the Bay Area last year, I think in late November, and you could see even then yeah. um, the, the the pretty drastic strides that that Harrison had already made 
uh, in terms of handling the ball. Um, he, he was, he was a guy when he played for the Warriors, he, like you said, he could barely, um, he could, he, he wasn't ever doing anything handling the ball. And, and he was, you know, running sets and running pick and rolls and doing stuff that he, he'd never done um, in Golden State and looked look really comfortable doing it. Yeah, I mean, he, he became a, a very good ISO player. And, you know, what everybody said at Golden State was he has to be a number four option. Now, again, do you want Harrison Barnes to be your number one option? Or are you going to be a playoff team if he is? Probably not. You know, they won 33 games last year uh, w- with him in that role. But... You know, the future here, he's more likely the number two option. If Dennis Smith Jr. is the kind of talent and develops the way that they anticipate that he will. Yeah, no, that's definitely true. Now, the, the final thing I want to ask you about was Nerlens Noel obviously had a bit of a contentious uh, this contract hmm. negotiation, to put it mildly, with the Mavs this summer, wound up signing a qualifying offer. Um, the history of guys who sign a qualifying offer as restricted free agents is that they, they tend to leave the team the following summer. Um, do you do you still see uh, the potential for this to be a long-term partnership from from on, on both sides, or do you think that the acrimony from this summer might wind up being a little too toxic for that to happen? You know, I, I would say uh, if Norlands would return my phone call, which has been <laughs> an issue, and ask for my advice, <laughs> I would tell him that he better get over his hurt feelings because he needs the Mavericks as much as the Mavericks need him. And I'm not talking about just this year. I'm talking about in the future. I mean, you saw the market for centers this summer, right? Right. You see, uh, you know, next year, and I've written about this with Bobby Marks, you know, that's anticipated to be an even tougher summer uh, for free agents. And you look at some of the centers who are available. Now, how many teams are searching for centers? And then you're going to have DeAndre Jordan. You're going to have DeMarcus Cousins. You're going to have Brooke Lopez, just to name a few. So, uh, hey, he needs to come in here, uh, get over whatever hurt feelings that he has. Um, certainly, you know, the, the Mavericks need to be, and, and I, I don't anticipate this being a problem, with it, but they can't hold any grudges because, because of negotiation. You know, you, you can't let your money get mad if you're on their side either. But, I think that uh, if, if you're Nerlens Noel, hey, I don't know if you're going to get four years, $70 million from anybody next year, but I would say your odds are best from getting it from the Mavericks, who obviously are going to have a need at center, right. uh, than, than getting it anywhere else. Just because I don't think, uh, you know, I don't think there's that many teams that are going to have needs at center that, are, that will also have that kind of cap space. And again, four teams who do want to spend big at center, I think you're at least third in line maybe fourth and you know maybe even further on down that list so um you might be mad at each other but this might also need to be a long-term marriage of convenience yeah i mean if you know i i'm with you if it had been up to me if i was his agent i would have done anything i could to give him to sign that deal this summer because i think especially given his injury history that was a pretty a pretty reasonable offer um, but, but look, you know, he is in an offense and a system that should fit him pretty well. He's playing with a point guard and Dennis Smith that in theory should be able to get him the ball. Um, yeah. you know, it, it, it does set up pretty well for him. And, and like you said, I think if he goes out and at least, you know, plays to somewhere near the capability that he has as a really talented guy, then, you know, he, he should be able to get a deal from Dallas next summer that, that allows him to stay there and make everybody happy. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's the thing, that if you just look at this from a basketball perspective, this has a chance to be a really good fit. Um, he, he needs to look at it from a basketball perspective. Yeah, no, it's, that's definitely true. It'll be interesting to see how it goes. So, Timmy, thanks for the time, man. I appreciate it. Uh, 
before uh, before you go, let people know where they can follow your snark on Twitter. And uh, this is coming out in a couple weeks, so if you got anything lined up for the first week or so at camp that uh, that you want to plug, feel free to do so here. I am at ESPN underscore McMahon, and uh, I am plug-free right now. Well, there you go. I'll be working on stuff, but I don't know when it's going to be running. <laughs> well, there you I, go. I, I mean, how are you going to put me in that situation, Bomb Temps? Just trying to you help really, you out, you, buddy. I mean, you, you really set me up to fail. That, you know, it's, it's like you threw me a, a, a no-look pass when you should have just laid it up. Listen, man, I just try, to, just try to help you out. You can't handle it, so it's not, uh, it's not, not my fault. But thanks, uh, right. thanks again for doing this, man, and I'll talk to you soon. All right, hey, I hope it was worth every penny you paid me. <laughs> it definitely was. <laughs> See you, brother. All right, Jonathan, thanks for coming on. And uh, I'm, I'm happy, happy to know that uh, you made it through the hurricane, you know, dry, at least at your, at your place for the most part. So uh, I'm glad, I'm glad that all worked out as well as it could have. And, uh, and I'm, I'm sure you're excited for what's, what's going to be a pretty interesting season in Houston, I think. It will be interesting. They, they always seem to be, but yeah, especially with everything that's happened around here, I am looking forward to sort of that routine and the rhythm of the season starting up, I guess, uh, Media day in just a couple of days. Yeah, this is we're, we're recording this before uh, before training camp opens. It's going to come out a little bit after that, but um, but yeah, no, I, I'm I'm sure you are. It's, it'll it'll be nice to get back into the swing of things, and you all you all have plenty to pay attention to. It's, it's the Rockets are going to be you know like you alluded to, they always manage to be interesting one way or the other. But this year they should be about as interesting as anybody in the league, and that's mainly because of the the big trade to bring in Chris Paul and, and pair him with James Harden, two two ball dominant guys that need the ball in their hands all the time. Uh, you know, it, or at least have in the past. Um, you know, it, on, on paper, it looks like it, it should be a, a great fit the way they complement each other, but it also, I'm sure, is going to have some growing pain. So how do you, you know, from your standpoint of being around the team, you know, as much as anybody, how do you see all this playing out? Well, I think it will work very well, but there will definitely be ups and downs. They need to have some setbacks so that they can address them and take them on. But it helps them. I mean, you had Chris Paul, and it helps. I mean, that's just right. that good. I mean, that part – it might not help James Harden be an MVP candidate again. You know, it takes some things that he does so well away and has somebody else do. So it might not be the best for his numbers, particularly his assist numbers, but it should make them so much stronger of a team. Because Chris Paul, and it's funny, because people said at the time of the deal and and often since, well, yeah, they got Chris Paul, great player, but they already had a guy they considered the best point guard in the NBA. And the Rockets absolutely considered Harden to be that. So you'd say there's some duplication there. And there is, but in other ways, Chris Paul brings things they really needed. And that's the thing that I think has gotten overlooked. They needed a guy who can run the offense or who can be a playmaker besides James Harden. Regardless of what position, you can't have every pass come from one guy because what we have seen is teams would load their defense up completely on that and take their chances that they can diminish just enough of that because the Rockets wouldn't have something else. If you try and do that now with Chris Paul running a middle pick and roll or Harden doing that, they can give it to the next guy, and he attacks, and he can distribute and create. It just makes them so much better. They had, you know, there's this myth out there that, that Daryl Morey hates all mid-range shooting. It's not true. 
but he has a standard for what he would consider to be good mid-range shooting, which is higher than traditional, to where you've got to be really good at it for him to consider it a good shot. So every year they try and get a mid-range shooter, a better mid-range shooter. They chase Chris Bosch. They chase, chase Carmelo Anthony. They have several times chased, chased Chris Paul. Well, they didn't have any really good mid-range shooting. They didn't have a guy who can attack a closeout and take that shot now they got one of the best, one of the two or three. Other than Kevin Durant, I think Chris Paul is the best at mid-range shots, getting them and making them. They lacked that. They lacked his style of leadership, which they needed a, a tough guy. They needed somebody who would be really demanding. So in a lot of ways, yeah, there's some things they have to figure out. But to me, they got a lot of what they needed even if it did happen to be at the same position James Harden played last year. Well, and to your point, Jonathan, I mean, we were both at game six in, in Houston, right, of the Western Conference semis, and James Harden, you know, for, you know, for lack of a better word, just seemed to run out of gas and, and just didn't, by the end of that series, just was, was completely spent from having to run the offense for 42 minutes a game, you know, game after game after game. And you, you would certainly think that that won't be the case now with, with between him and Chris Paul, you know, you should be able to have one of those guys on the court for 48 minutes a game, and that, that should allow you to have, you know, a, one of the best, say, probably five, you know, shot creators in the league on the court for 48 minutes a game, which is a which is a luxury that, you know, basically no team has ever had, basically. Yeah, well, there's three guys in the NBA right now who've ever led the league in assists, and two of them are on the same team. So it, it, there haven't been a lot of teams with two playmakers like this at the same time. And you're right, when Harden hits a wall, now, maybe this won't be true going forward in his career, but so far, when he hits a wall, he's done. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't just game six. Actually, yeah. I thought it was game five. You yeah. know, in San Antonio, he had a terrific game, and it was a really good game. And he just sort of ran out of gas for about five minutes left. The Spurs got it to overtime, and yeah. Martin just wasn't there. Yeah. Uh, two Two years earlier against the Warriors when he had the 12 turnover game and the closeout game. And the Warriors threw everything at him then. Yeah. I mean, just everything. They're really good at that. You know, one of the things about the Warriors that's very overlooked, if, if that's even possible these days. <laughs> <laughs> right. Think about that team. But they just wore him down. And so now, yeah, I do think he won't be – because when you're the guy who's the focus of the offense, you're not just going against the other team's best defender, as he did, but you're going against the entire scheme. Every play, every minute you're on the floor. Well, things absolutely have to scheme a bit for Chris Paul. And if they just try and say, okay, we're still going to make it all about engulfing Harden, well, and Chris Paul will, will create offense all around it. So yeah, no. yeah, it should make Harden better – longer yeah no, no question about it I, I think it definitely should be interesting one one thing i am curious about even beyond the the harden and paul pairing is the paul and mike d'antoni pairing i mean that you know mike has had his issues in the past at times with with headstrong stars whether it's you know uh you know chris's close friend carmelo anthony we'll get to in a minute or, or kobe Bryant in in la um you know he he seemed to really develop a nice bond with harden last year which i think some people were unsure about when he got there but that that relationship looked like it went about as well as it could have um, do you have any do you have any concerns about you know Chris being a guy who is generally like to kind of play pretty methodically and uh, you know control every aspect of what's going on you know meshing with the way you know Mike and it seemed James really preferred to kind of take things last year to to kind of fit into you know Mike's more freewheeling you know uh, for more frenetic style. Well, 
a lot of Mike's reputation comes, it even comes just from the title of Jack McCallum's book, The Seven Right, Left. right. It really never was. You know, the pace that the, that the Suns played at then would be like 13th, 14th in the league now. It's right. not this incredible pace. The Rockets' pace in some ways was very good last year. Harden likes to throw the ball ahead, and that created pace. But they weren't the run, run, run team that people thought they were because that's not Harden. And we asked a lot. I, I talked to Mike about this quite a bit, just even conversationally, and he always said a point guard has to determine his own tempo. Yeah, a, a point guard has to decide the pace that the team will play that fits him. And he was saying that at that time, sort of defending Harden, who does not push the ball. Harden right. likes to look things over. In fact, the, the thing with Harden that was always so funny to watch, he would cross the timeline with like a half, he was like Eli Manning trying to make <laughs> him get the playoffs. You know, it's like, what are you doing? You get, over like, well, at, you get over at 16 and a half a lot. Oh, a lot. He was, yeah. And, you know, Mike could never say a, a word of criticism. He didn't feel a word of criticism for Harden last year. Obviously, Harden had a historic season. Right. So I do think this is more of a chance for him to show that. But he's always said it. That, no, a point guard determines his pace. Well, now you've got a point guard who determined the pace he likes about 10 years ago. How do you feel about that? And then the thing I talked about before, the mid-range shot, where the team that wants only free throws, dunks, and threes now has a mid-range shooter. We'll see how they accept that when there are struggles. I think they'll be fine when they're rolling right along, but you've got to know there's going to be some struggles in the first two months, three months. How do they deal with that? Do they maintain sort of that faith that they maintained last year? They had that incredible December. Well, it was easy when the struggles came after to maintain faith because they already had that success. We'll see if they have that kind of success early to sort of build that foundation of confidence. Yeah, no, that's uh, that that certainly will it'll be really interesting to watch. And like you said, I think I think it will be good for them long term if they have some issues early and can work through them. But that doesn't mean they're fun to work through at the time. So how they uh, how they handle that will be interesting. And uh, along those lines, you know, like I mentioned before, a guy who's had issues with Mike Antonio in the past is Carmelo Anthony, who, you know, has been rumored to, to potentially be going to Houston for months now. Uh, at one point it looked like the deal was going to happen, and then it didn't. You know, now, uh, you know, I know recording this a little bit before this podcast is going to come out, but, uh, you know, there's reports today out in New York that, that Carmelo is still hopeful that he can maybe get traded before camp, that he still wants to go to Houston. Um, do, what do you think the chances are that at some point here before the season starts, they, the, the Rockets are able to swing a trade for Carmelo, or do you think that at, at this point it's more likely than not that that ship has sailed and they've probably got the team they, they're going to have for at least the opening part of the season? Yeah, I think it's more likely at this point that this is the team that they have at least through the preseason. The problem is, is the Rockets are sort of sitting here just waiting. There's not a lot else they can do. They have to wait for the Knicks basically to say, okay, we'll take what you can get for us. Because it's not a case of, we'll take Ryan Anderson if you put in this sweetener and that sweetener. It makes no sense for them to take Ryan Anderson. Right. He's got a contract a year longer than Carmelo's and plays the same position as Kristaps Porzingis, so it makes no sense. Right. So it's got to come from somewhere else. Well, there's not a lot the Rockets can do then, because it's up to the Knicks a little bit to say, okay, that thing we wouldn't take before, we'll take now. 
to right. avoid all the dysfunction and distraction of having Carmelo back. It, 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 teams have done different things where some say, no, we'll wait for the best deal we can get and deal with the dysfunction and distraction. Others have said, no way, I'm not dealing with that. We'll just get what we can. At what day did the Knicks wake up and say, let's just do it? Uh, you know, they haven't all summer long. And in a lot of ways, I think they're playing chicken with Carmelo. To say, right. we're not going to trade you. You're going to be here or you're going to open up the list of teams that you will accept a trade to. That right. you waive the no trade. So I think it's a little bit of both sides playing chicken where Carmelo says only Houston, and they say, well, then you're back here until you give us another team. Yeah, no, I, I think that I think you're spot on with that. And, and look, if there's any team that, that's led the league in dysfunction for the last number of years, it's the Knicks. So uh, I think betting, I think betting on them leaning into the dysfunction to try to get Carmelo to agree to go somewhere else so they can get a little bit more uh, than than a, like you said, a guy who is paid longer than him and, and plays the same position as Kristaps. I think is probably a pretty good bet. Yeah, it's you know the problem with all of this is the Knicks are under new management, <laughs> right? So we don't entirely know, like how much of their history or at least their recent history is tied to the guy Phil Jackson who's not there anymore. Right. We're still like that tension. You know, he always did. Yes. Well, he's not there anymore, so it's a little harder to predict because you can't look at the track and handicap from that. But, yeah, that's sure. The one track record we can look at is the past two months of will Carmelo stay or will he go, and nothing happens. That's the <laughs> right. record we do have. Yes. No, that's very true. Um, well, one guy who really, really stepped forward last year and had a very nice year for the Rockets is Clint Capella. Um, you know, really, really emerged you know, in, the, in the wake of trading Dwight Howard, really emerged as a quality starting center, a guy that really fits in the modern games, a perfect fit, it seems like, for the way Mike likes to play. Um, good role man, good defender at the rim. Um, really, really looks like he could be a nice long-term fit there at center. Um, do you, with that said, you know, he, his, his deadline for agreeing to a contract extension comes up here uh, in a few weeks before the season starts. Uh, do, you, do you think it's more likely than not that, that he comes to an agreement with the Rockets, or do you think that, that maybe they wait and see how the things go and then address it next summer in free agency and set? I'll put it this way. Daryl Morey has never given that extension, not once. You know, he has always said, go be a restricted free agent, and you know, we'll still keep you. We'll want you here. But if he can keep a guy as a restricted free agent, he generally does. Not generally. He always does that. And so if I'm his agent, the only way Morey changes that is if he feels like he's getting such a bargain. Now, why would Clint Capella's agent give such a bargain? He's going right. to put up numbers. Uh, you know, with Chris Paul now, he's going to do really well. You know, right. it's just, I, I don't see them giving the discount that it would take for Maury to change. Just talking about track records, yeah. he's got one. He's never, ever done that extension. It, it, a lot of it, again, it goes back to what the agent is willing to accept to sort of force that. But I wouldn't do it if I was him because Capella's young. He's never had an injury history to where there's nothing you have to worry about. Get it now but while you can. And he's going to put up solid numbers. You know he will. Right. And, and unlike a lot of these centers who are having issues now, um, I, I think that, you know, Capella doesn't have the same issues that they do in terms of being a guy that maybe doesn't fit in the modern game. Like, he, like you said, he's not only is he going to put up numbers and he's been healthy and he's young, but he's also a guy that should be a perfect fit for the way the league is going. So in terms of like, even if there's not a lot of teams that need uh, centers at this point, you would still think his market is going to be better than a lot of these other guys and that in recent years have struggled to get deals. So there's even less of an incentive for him to, uh, to, to say, Hey, you know, I need to make sure I get some security now. And if I, he has a good year, you know, one way or the other, he should be able to get paid. Yeah. That, 
he's never been in a league that's played a way different than this league is now playing. This right. is all he's ever known, and it fits his talents and, and so on. The other thing that the Rockets quickly saw about him, you know, before everybody else could, he's a bright guy. He learns fast, and and so James loved him for that from the beginning. And that you know, if he messes up, they get on him, and boom, he's got it. And yep. he likes to work. You know, he, he John Lucas just lives with the guy. Mm-hmm. And now all of this might not mean much in free agency because who else knows it or bases decisions based on that. But it makes the Rockets more willing to say, yeah, if someone wants to give you a contract to scare us off, we'll match it because they think that much of him. And then the other part of it is they would have bird rights to him next year. So while they have to worry about Chris Paul, and who knows, maybe they have to worry about Carmelo Anthony, then they can do him last. And then on top of all of that, none of us know. They, they're between owners. So right. we have to know what the new owner's way of doing things will be on something like this. Because if you do him after all the big ones, you're in luxury tax territory for sure. Well, does a guy who just paid $2.2 billion for a team say, yeah, luxury tax, bring it on? You know, we don't know that yet. I don't know if the Rockets know that yet, which is another reason to wait and find out. Yeah, and, and you know what? It's funny. I in, in coming up with my my list of questions for 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 talking to you, I completely forgot about the the sale of the team, um, which why which I think we'll wrap up with instead of what I was going to ask you. Um, you know, you, you've been around the team a long time. I'm sure you I'm sure you've at least come across someone for at different points. Uh, given you know he's a he, he was a guy who bid on the team originally back when uh, Les Alexander uh, purchased it. He's a guy who had a minority stake in the team before that. Um, he's a Houston native. Um, were you were you surprised at all that that this was the the way this turned out that that Les sold to a guy in the area who who he knew and 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 it, do you have any sense at all? I mean, I know you said that the team still isn't uh, maybe isn't quite sure what the the future is going to look like. Do you have any sense that things are going to change a lot from from uh, the way Alexander has done things? When I think most people would argue he's been you know one of the the better owners, if not maybe the best, over the last couple decades in the league to to what Fertitta is going to, to want to do. Well, Tillman has a reputation of being a very hands-eyed guy, but not to the extent he's in his kitchen telling the chef to add more basil or something. Right. You know, he's not intrusive in all of his businesses, but he, he is definitely a guy who wants to know what's going on, all the decisions, why they were made, what went into them, which is very much like Leslie Alexander. That's how he was with the Rockets. He just didn't have a bunch of other businesses. Right. And so – that part of it is going to be – I think a lot of it is nobody knows, including Tillman, until he does it, until he has time to see how it fits and how it balances with all of his other things. This guy's – I mean, he's everywhere. He's got businesses in 34 states. Yep. He's got 50 different restaurant chains. He's got hotels. He's got a, he's got a TV show, you know. Uh, he can do it. He's one of these super high-energy guys, you know, kind of in that Mark Cuban mold. People compare him to Cuban because they both have TV shows and they're not afraid of a camera. But <laughs> Right. <laughs> you know, like but the thing that always struck me about Mark is the incredible intellectual energy he has. This right. guy finds something new fascinating every year. Yes. All the time. He's, and Tillman is a little bit that way, too. Um, to go back to your first part of it, was, was I surprised? Well, I did expect or, or I did think there would be a very good chance it would be a local billionaire. It wasn't the one because he typically – there was one I sort of thought had the inside track, and he was definitely a candidate. But uh, Tillman never had a history of buying products or companies that were on the way up. 
that this was not a distressed property. This right. Is, you know, that's never been his history. But the one part of his history was, as you said, he tried. He was 36 years old when he was the runner-up last time they were sold. There was no way 24 years later he was going to be a runner-up again. He decided this is what I want to do. I've amassed my fortune for something like this. That, and so he was not going to lose. And so maybe that does come back from the 1993 sale. That, yeah. You know, he just was going to get this team one way or another. Well, look, another another Mark Cuban in the NBA is good by me. So if he if he if he winds up being half as colorful as Mark has been, I, I think it's going to be a win for me and you and everybody else covering the league. So um, that'll it'll be interesting. But it, it will be an interesting transition because I like I, like I said, I think Wes Alexander in a lot of ways kind of set the standard for what you want an NBA owner to be if you're a fan of the team. And um, you know, it's it's definitely going to be interesting to see if uh, if Tillman can can live up to, to that reputation because that, that's not an easy – it's not going to be an easy example to follow. But It's not. It's a good model because – I mean, there's the part that the fans always like is he spends. He wasn't right. always – you know, we're near, actually, the highest payroll on salaries. But if there was a guy – if that made the decision, can we get this guy? you got to pay him a little bit. Oh, yeah, get him. And, so right. there, and then he found other ways to spend. You know, I used to joke, Darryl, half of Daryl Morey's job is coming up with new ways to spend, let's say, Alexander's money. <laughs> right. You know, let's, let's buy a D-League team. You know, they were the first team with this D-League arrangement that is now yeah. very common. Let's sign these three guys for two days so we can have them at practice, take a look, and then cut them. Well, we got to pay them, but that's okay. Let's do it anyway. They, yeah. they would do this stuff all the time. And the other part that I think fans should want, and I think I always say this, if you're a free agent, a max contract free agent, one of the first things you should look at is the thing that is typically one of the last or not at all that they look at, and that is how involved is the owner. You don't want a guy who wants to stay so out of it that when things go wrong, he could just say, well, my basketball people messed it up. Right. You know, I, I, it was still. I, it was all Phil. I see that. <laughs> right, 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 right. You don't want that. You want, you want somebody with some skin in the game. Yeah, skin yeah. in the game. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And you want a guy who is watching, you know, Les didn't go to a lot of games. He, you know, majority he watched, but he never missed one. Right. You know, and, 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 and he bled over them. You know, he, he, in fact, that's one of the reasons he's stepping away from it is it, it, it hurt, you know. Right. And it, not that, oh, the game six was the last straw. It's just there's a grind that comes with caring that much. Well, that's what you would want is a guy who cares that much, not just needs to go play his harmonica and sing the blues. You know, just you want to, you know, if they, you don't even know. Somebody has to tell you, hey, how did my team do tonight? No, no, you don't want that. And, so that, and that's one thing I think they do get with Tillman Fertitta. I think he will before long be that way too. Yeah, no, I, I think I think you're you're spot on with that. It should be very interesting. So, Jonathan, thanks thanks a lot for the time, man. I really appreciate it. Um, like I said, I'm happy that I'm happy you made it out of the the storm mostly uh, mostly dry. Uh, I know that wasn't the yeah. case for everybody down there, so I'm happy happy it worked out that way. And, and before you go, just uh, give the people you know information on where they can where they can find you on Twitter, and if you've got anything uh, in the works as as uh, the training camp gets underway and we get started here. Uh-huh. Well, I'm on Twitter, Jonathan underscore Fagan, which is F-E-I-G-E-N. 
And I do have things in the works, but I think they're going to be out, you know, before this is. But uh, starting with a pretty good, I hope it'll be good in-depth uh, Q&A with Daryl Morey uh, as we look at some of these issues that you and I have been talking about. A few of them, he might not be as forthcoming. I don't know, <laughs> I don't know that he's going to get into how he thinks the new boss will act or what the chances of trading for Carmelo would be. But I'll try to find a way to get him to address some things, too. No, that, that'll be good. And, and Jonathan knows the Rockets as well as anybody who's covered him for a long time and does a great job. So he should definitely follow him. Wow. That's a big milestone. This will be – I mean, I, I joined Eddie Sefko in some of the coverage in the playoffs before that. But right. as the big guy, this is season number 20. That's a big number. Yeah, it's a round number anyway. <laughs> True. But Jonathan, Jonathan does a terrific job of covering the Rockets. You should definitely follow him. So thanks a lot, man, for the time. And, uh, and I'm looking forward to seeing you down the road for what should be a, a really interesting season. All right. Enjoy it, Tim. Take care. All right, Chris, thanks for doing this, man. I appreciate it. Um, I know you got a lot going on, so thanks for fitting me in, giving me some time. Um, you've been following the Grizzlies for a long time, and a lot of that has been with Tony Allen and, and Zach Randolph in particular as part of the team. Uh, you know, as things are getting going here, what does it feel like not having, you know, those two guys that have really been the faces of what this franchise has been about for a long time not there anymore? Uh, well, it'll be bittersweet. I mean, I think a lot of people in Memphis were hoping their time in Memphis would end when their careers ended. And that is not the case. It'll be particularly odd to see Tony Allen in a different uniform on opening night here in Memphis. He'll come back with the New Orleans Pelicans for the Grizzlies opener. Um, I, from my perspective, I mean, you know, after a while, you sort of you find, your, you find yourself repeating yourself when you have the same players <laughs> in, the same, in the same group of players, the yeah. same style of play for so long. Um, and so I'm sort of interested in having a lot of new players to write about and to think about, new questions to explore. And so I think it'll be interesting for me from a writing perspective. I think it's it's a little bit more perilous maybe from a fan perspective and a team perspective because not only are you shifting away from really popular players, but there's a danger of shifting into a less successful era. And so that is certainly something that is not greeted. That's not, not, that is not, you know, a welcome thing. Right. No. And, and along those lines, I mean, the, the two guys from that core that are still there, uh, Mike Conley and, and Mark Gasol have been, you know, really bedrocks of consistency, even, you know, coming back from injuries quicker than expected and, and really just been tremendous players um, over the last few years. Is it, how, how much longer can, uh, can people there realistically expect those runs of success from those guys to continue? I mean, it seems like Conley's still getting better despite being 29. And, you know, Gasol, even though he's 32, you know, came back from, you know, a pretty pretty serious foot injury to, to play, you know, as well as he ever has last year. Yeah, I mean, I think they both exceeded expectations um, last season. I mean, Conley, obviously, you know, you thought maybe he had plateaued. You didn't expect him to have his best season. And right. I think I think he probably had his best all-around season. And certainly, you know, David Fisdale, one of the things he wanted was to let Conley loose offensively in a way that he hadn't been before. And that worked. And it particularly worked even heading into the playoffs. I mean, he's coming off. The best basketball he's, he's ever played may have been in that playoff series, even though they lost in six games. Right. And then Gasol, you know, post-30, coming off a broken foot. I mean, there was just no one knew what to expect. 
And if that wasn't his best season, and I don't think it was his best season, it was maybe his best offensive season in the sense of expanding his shooting, his high, his high scoring average, but he expanded his shooting range to three point range. He was every bit as um, brilliant as a passer as he'd been before. Probably not as good defensively, certainly not as good on the boards, but overall was still an all NBA, NBA all star level center at that age. And so I, you know, and, and, and you saw him good this summer playing with, with the Spanish team. Obviously, he's in good, he's in good shape. Um, I expect them both to repeat this season. Now, can they carry that level of performance very far beyond this coming season is the question. Right. Because Conley in particular has many more years at a very high price on, on his contract. But I, you know, I, I feel like Conley and Gasol are the least of the Grizzlies' problems, not only for this season, but projecting <laughs> through their current contracts. And Gasol in particular, as a seven-footer who is now a, a, a three-point shooter and is a brilliant passer and a smart team defender, I think he's going to hold value pretty well, you know, if he stays healthy even into his, you know, mid-late 30s. Yeah, no, that, that, that certainly seems to be the case. And you're right. I mean, this is a Memphis team that, you know, especially with, you know, the the Tony Allen and, and Zach Randolph eras both coming to an end at the same time. I mean, this is a team that has been for a long time been defined by those four guys. And now, you know, you've still got Mark and Mike there, but, you know, the rest of the group looks a lot different in that, that you know, it, it it's turned, I think, a lot of attention fairly to Chandler Parsons, a guy who, you know, signed the biggest free agent contract by far in the history of the franchise last year. Um, you know, was a guy that was, you know, hoped to to finally fill the void on the wing for a two-way wing this team has looked for for a long time. And, you know, then basically didn't play last year as he continued to deal with uh, knee issues. So what what is the, uh, you know, as camp gets started here, what it, what is the status of his um of his health at this point and, and how much can anyone in Memphis realistically expect to get from him after, you know, essentially getting nothing last season? Well, I mean, this is a case where like there, you can, you can deploy a cliche with some amount of um, certainty in which there is literally nowhere to go, but up. Um, <laughs> right. I mean, Par- Parsons had negative value last season. Uh, the Grizzlies would have been a better team if he had never put on a uniform. Um, literally. He was one of the worst players in the entire NBA. Um, they still ran him out there for 20 minutes a night while, you know, while they could, even though his performance was dragging the team down. And so it'll be better this season, even if it's zero, because they won't play him that much if he is playing that poorly. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the the question is, can he be a, can he be a positive instead of not being a drag? And there's a lot of mystery. He's coming off three straight seasons of, um, of, you know, season ending knee injuries, essentially. Um, they, they're saying he's going to be fully ready to go for training camp. Um, publicly they're saying that, um, from what I've talked to, I, I've heard some, some caution about, you know, whether he's going to, you know, actually, you know, be able, to, be able to play a full minutes. I expect some, at least initially a minutes restriction. I'll be surprised if he plays back to backs, that kind of thing. And so I think he'll be limited, at least initially in terms of playing time. Then the question is effectiveness. And I just, I, I have a hard time until we see him on the floor in the preseason, I have a hard time personally projecting him to be anything more than an average rotation player in a part-time role. And so to me, and it could be worse than that. It was much worse than that last season. But to me, you have to project conservatively. And until I see otherwise, that's the best I can project from him. 
Yeah, and that might, and like you said, that might even be charitable, Chris, right? Because right. he, because you know, like you said, he was injured for so much of last year, and then you know, as you mentioned, when he when he did play, I mean, he really he really was dreadful. I mean, I'm looking up his numbers now. I mean, he averaged six points. He was um, one of the worst players in the NBA last year. Yeah, shot 34 percent with the field, twenty seven percent from three, uh, six points, one and a half assists. I mean, you know, played twenty minutes, like you said, played twenty minutes a game in thirty four games. Just really was. He wasn't a viable really player. Right. He he should he should not have been on, been on a floor last season. He he never reached the point of viability despite the minutes he got. Right. Which you know, obviously, it was not what Memphis was hoping to get when they gave him you know a max deal the prior summer. And you know, like you said, in a on, on a roster with a lot of questions outside of those two main guys. I mean, he is, uh, he is, he is the biggest, he's the biggest piece of that for sure. No, I mean, he, he yeah. I mean, I mean, by far you put that level of investment in him and in theory, if you had the theoretical Chandler Parsons, like the apex Chandler Parsons that, 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 you know, was seen in Houston maybe, or, or, or Dallas in some stretches to go with Conley and Gasol, this is an entirely different conversation about this Grizzlies team. Um, without Parsons at all, you, of this roster, and we'll get to that. It's full of, of of unproven players, and so he's sort of he's sort of the fulcrum in terms of which way they could go. Um, and based on his health record, and based on last season, that's not not a promising thing. <laughs> no, not uh, not not really. I, I wouldn't say it's that promising. Um, another guy who's been banged up for a couple of years is Tyreek Evans, a, a Memphis guy. He went to Memphis. Uh, you know, he's bounced around the league a little bit. Um, I actually know the guy that did his last surgery, Riley Williams, uh, the surgeon for the Brooklyn Nets. And, I, you know, I, uh, it seemed like he came back from it finally uh, pretty decently last year. I mean, his permanent numbers are pretty good uh, in 40 games last year. Um, you know, it, it, is, there, is there some optimism in Memphis that, you know, after getting him to come there on a, a pretty cheap one-year deal that he can maybe, um, you know, give them a pretty nice boost as a, as a six-man off the bench? Yeah, there's a lot of optimism optimism on Evans actually, and it's another thing where personally I'm I'm interested to see him in preseason and see how he looks physically. But the reports have been very good. Everyone is saying that he's in great shape, he's healthier than he's been in the last several years, and so you're getting a lot of Tyreek Evans bounce back, you know, kind of you know hype bubbling bubbling under right now. We'll see if that comes to fruition. But you know, this is a guy who's played a total, I believe, a total of about 60 games in the past two seasons, multiple knee problems. He's still young. He's still under 30. Um, and so I think for the Grizzlies, it sounds sort of funny, but he's sort of the Zach Randolph replacement in the sense of being the high usage bucket getter off the bench. Like Randolph played that role out of the front court for this team last season. I think the hope is that Evans will give them a little bit more of a conventional sort of ball dominant six man, a guy who can come off the bench um, on second units and sort of you know, be the go-to guy and help the second unit stay afloat, but then potentially could pair with Mike Conley, you know, you know, maybe in some closing lineups too, because he can handle the ball well enough to sort of allow Conley to play off the ball. And so I don't think anyone's expecting, you know, old rookie of the year Tyreek, but I think people are expecting him to be a more significant factor than he's been the last couple of seasons. Yeah. And even if he, and if he can, I mean, if he can continue across what he did last year for a whole season, he shot 36, 36% from 35 and a half percent from three average 10 a game, three assists. Um, you know, if he can, if he can do that in 25 minutes or so off the bench, that that's a pretty decent piece for them. Yeah. Yeah. They're looking at him to, to play that six man role. I yeah. Think. Now, and it would also be a nice story. Everybody in Memphis likes a, likes a, one of their guys to come back and play. So if he, if he's healthy and has some success there, that'd be uh that'd, that'd be good for them. You, uh, 
and, and you, you kind of mentioned it before, but you know, if you look at, if you look them down the depth chart for the Grizzlies, there's just a lot of young guys all over the place. There's Deontay Davis and Jerome Martin and, um, you know, Andrew Harrison and Wade Baldwin behind Conley. You've got uh, Dylan Brooks maybe in the mix behind Parsons, uh, if Parsons is healthy. Um, what, what, how, how much of Memphis' success this season is really going to depend on at least some of these young guys um, stepping up and giving them some really legitimate production, even if it's just as, you know, as secondary depth guys off the bench? Well, they have an unusual number of unproven, you know, rookie contract players on a roster for a team that's trying to be a playoff team. I mean, in theory, it could be like half the roster, right? Right. Um, and so, you know, in theory, you could envision a, you know, a sort of a short rotation that would have, you know, a bench unit that's basically Tyreek Evans, Brandon Wright, and Mario Chalmers, in which case you're not relying on the kids as much. But all three of those guys are coming off significant injury questions, right? Right. And so, and then and that's not even factoring in the Chandler Parsons issue. And so you're, they're going to need significant playing time for, from some of those young players. It doesn't have to be all of them, but but they need two or three of them to be quality rotation players. None of them have proven to be quality rotation players. The one who's going to be asked probably at the top of the pecking order in terms of what's expected is probably going to be Wayne Selden. Because with Ben McLemore's injury, I think when they signed Ben McLemore, they were sort of penciling him in as the likely starter at two card in replace of Tony Allen. Mm-hmm. But McLemore is going to be out the first month or so of the season. I think they would prefer Tyreek Evans off the bench. They don't really want to start Troy Daniels. No, no coach ever wants to start Troy Daniels. They don't really <laughs> play him that much right. once they have him. Right. And so I think they're they're pro- odds are Wayne Selden, who had a great summer league, but is a total of about twenty games of NBA experience. Going to start. It's going to be. It's going to be asked to be the starting two guard on this team. And then after him, again, it, it, there's not a specific player it has to be, but they need Andrew Harrison or Wayne Ball, or Wade Baldwin to be able to play. They need Dylan Brooks or Roddy Zagarot to be able to play. And they need Deontay Davis or Ivan Rab to be able to play. And so with those three pairs, they need one, they probably need one of the two to, to, to be to be useful in each of those scenarios. Yeah, it's a lot it's a lot to ask. I mean, it's you know, there's a reason Memphis is is projected to win 37 games. Now, they've usually uh outpaced their projections just about every season, but, you know, in a in a Western Conference with a lot of competition, you know, it is easy to see why people are a little skeptical about what they can do this season. Yeah, I mean, I my sort of feeling on that is I think there are six teams competing for three spots, and I think the Grizzlies are one of those six teams. Right. But until until I see something promising from Chandler Parsons or Tyreek Evans, you know, in, 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 in some gameplay in the coming weeks, I, I, I sort of have to have them towards the back end of that group. Yeah, I think I, I tend to agree exactly with that as usual. So, um, Chris, thanks thanks for the time, man. I appreciate it. Uh, before you go, though, just let people know where they can follow you on Twitter to get your excellent work on the Grizzlies and other things. And also, if you got anything coming up here in the next week or so worth uh, checking out. Well, as you know, basketball is sort of my second life. So my, my basketball Twitter feed is Harrington NBA, H-E-R-R-I-N-G-T-O-N. And I do a semi-weekly um, column called The Pick and Pop and a semi-weekly podcast, The Pick and Popcast. You can find all that stuff at commercialpill.com, but I certainly tweet out the links to it on Twitter. It's all good stuff, too. You should definitely follow Chris. So thanks a lot for doing this, man. I appreciate it, and uh, I'll see you down the road. All right. Anytime, Tim. If you enjoyed this podcast and are interested in learning more about the NBA, you can get my weekly NBA newsletter, the Monday Morning Post-Up, delivered right to your inbox every Monday morning at 8 a.m. To do so, 
please go to wapo.st slash postupnewsletter to subscribe. You'll get an original column from me, links to my work from the past week, links to work from both my colleagues at the Washington Post and other writers from around the web about the league, a viewing guide for the week ahead, and some dining and pop culture recommendations. Again, to subscribe to the Monday Morning Post-Up, please go to wapo.st slash postupnewsletter and start your week off right with everything you need to know about the NBA. All right, Scott, thanks for coming on, man. Really appreciate it. Uh, I, this is coming out uh, a couple weeks before. This, we're recording this a couple weeks before it'll come out, but I know you're in the, the throes of preseason stuff. So appreciate the time uh, Appreciate the time with this. And, and look, you're, you're around this team as much as anybody, and it, it's a pretty pivotal season for the Pelicans. I mean, you got uh, DeMarcus Cousins in the final year of his contract. You know, Anthony Davis, you know, his contract is already on the clock. Um, you know, the, the front office and the coaching staff is, uh, is potentially up in the air. So... It's a lot to uh, lot to figure out, and I guess it starts with Demarcus and, and Anthony. What what do you think a full season of the two of them together will look like? I really, you saw glimpses last year in those uh, like eleven game stretch. They went eight and three. They played really well off each other. They rolled off each other. Cousins was stretching the floor, making threes, and you kind of got the glimpse of hey, this pairing actually makes sense when they work it the right way. And I think that Alvin Gentry saw that too, and that's why he brought in a guy like Chris Finch uh, as an assistant coach to say, look, here's a guy that can really take advantage of this. We know that there's two skilled big guys here. They can play off of each other the way any other two superstars could. um, so just because they play, you know, very similar positions doesn't mean they can't make this work. So I expect them to to do a lot of screen and rolling off each other. I expect them to keep uh, the other one from getting a lot of double teams. And I expect one of them to be on the floor uh, at all times. And that on its own is a huge weapon that you're always going to have a superstar on the court. Uh, and I think that's going to create a lot of mismatches for a lot of teams. I think they can be a very successful pairing. Uh, it's just a matter of if they can stay healthy, which is always a question with Anthony Davis, uh, and a matter of if they can both stay unselfish enough to make it work. Yeah, no, I, I think it, I think it'll be really interesting to see. I mean, there are there are a lot of things to uh, um, there there are a lot of things that that need to be uh, that be to be figured out. But they did show at the end of that season they had some potential to to really work pretty well together. Um, you know, and, and at least showed glimpses of what they can be. Yeah, I think, you know, you go back and look at the right games. You know, the, the first couple of weeks was a disaster. Like, I, you watched really those first four or five games. You're like, this is one of the worst ideas I've ever seen. And nothing worked. They didn't know how to play together. Um, they could not figure out how to get to Marcus the ball. Drew Holiday was just an awful point guard trying to play super passive and, and get everybody the, the ball rather than looking for his own shot. And as they moved Holiday off the ball – uh, allowed him to become a little bit more aggressive. Then Davis and Cousins started figuring out how to pair with each other and how to pass to each other, where each other likes to go on the floor. And I think you really started to see that they do different stuff uh, and, and that together they are really dynamic when they are having you – know, when you get single-teamed, I mean, it's almost impossible to stop either one of those guys. Uh, and both of them have been double-teamed essentially their whole career. And now they're in a position – where they don't have to go through a lot of that, and it really makes them a lot more dynamic offensively. Um, I don't know exactly how it'll work defensively because I think Cousins is a you know Cousins is not a great defender, 
Um, and Anthony Davis has problems occasionally, especially, you know, that defensive IQ. Uh, but they are very talented. I don't think there's any question there's enough talent for this team to go to the playoffs. It's a matter of if they can can get all the chemistry together and get everything working. And there's a whole lot of pressure on them to do it and do it quickly. Yeah, no, that that's very true. I mean, there's a lot riding on this season for a lot of people, and that it'll be fascinating to see how that plays out. And you know, along those lines, you know, the other partnership that that's going to be interesting is is Drew Holiday and, and Rajon Rondo in the backcourt. So I I guess let's start first with what do you think the starting five for this team is going to look like? Because I, I think I think everybody can be pretty confident that that obviously Holiday, Cousins, and and Davis are going to start, but the other two spots. I think at least for some people are up in the air, although I'm guessing that Rondo probably gets one of them. So what, what do you think for now, at least the starting lineup looks like? Yeah, you talk to everyone on airline and then they'll, which is, you know, where their practice facility is. Mm-hmm. It, basically you talk to everyone over there and they'll tell you that Rajon Rondo came here to start. Um, this was a part of the deal of getting him, I think was telling him that he was going to be a starter, which is the opposite of what happened with Tony Allen. They were able to bring Tony Allen and basically say, look, you're going to be a defensive specialist. You're going to, you know, come off the bench. You're going to play depending on the opponent um, is really how your, how your minutes are going to work. Rajon Rondo is the starting point guard for this team. Uh, Andrew Holiday is going to be off the ball most of the time. Uh, and then that three spot, which would have been Solomon Hills and, you know, would have been a nice fit because he wouldn't have had a lot of pressure offensively uh, and could have really just done his thing on defense. I think now that will be the biggest battle of camp. Again, two two really inspiring names there <laughs> with uh, Dante Cunningham or Darius Miller will probably get uh, that. That'll probably be where that goes. If they want to, you know, add shooting and be a little bit more dynamic offensively, they'll probably go with Miller. And if they want to be a little bit longer and have someone who is uh, a little bit more experienced, uh, they'll probably go with Cunningham. I would expect Miller is probably going to be the guy they want to get that job. Um, because they'd like to add any sort of shooting that they can. Right. But, you know, the guy's never really done it at the NBA level, uh, at any level of success. Right. Yeah, no, that it, it is interesting how many unproven pieces are, are, you know, kind of lackluster pieces they have to fill things out. And that, let, let's get to that Rondo and Holiday thing first, though. The, the Falcons spent a lot of money to, to bring Rondo or bring Holiday back, as I think most people thought they should have. I mean, he's a really good player, and when healthy, he's a, a really nice fit with, with Davis and, and Cousins. But uh, the Rondo move is a little interesting in that, you know, you'd think that you'd want to play Holiday as much as you can at the point. But um, what do you think led them to make that move? And and how do you think that partnership will work? I, I mentioned a little bit earlier, Holiday, when he was the pure point guard with Cousins and Davis for that about week-long stretch, uh, he was awful. I mean, he, he looked uh, total deer in the headlights. He didn't know what to do with the ball. He was constantly trying to pass. He, he looked unhappy because um, he was just trying to feed these two big guys all the time rather than trying to get his own shots. And what Alvin Gentry said at the time was we need to free Drew Holiday to be Drew Holiday, which is someone who's a dynamic, aggressive scorer. And they felt moving him off the ball was the best way to do that. They moved him off the ball. They became a lot better. Now, that could have also been the combination of just more minutes together for Davis and Cousins. Uh, but at the same time, it did unleash Drew Holiday a bit. He played a lot better um, after that stretch. So their thought really going into the offseason was, number one, locked around Drew Holiday because they think he's a great perimeter defender who's uh, you know, a high-quality player. And definitely they could not have gotten anyone better on the open market free agency. They can't attract anyone mm-hmm. at that level, particularly right. with their cap money. Right. Um, and then – 
they said, let's get a point guard to pair with him so that we can keep him off the ball and get a pass-first point guard who doesn't want to shoot and who's really wants to distribute and Rajon Rondo is kind of the definition of that guy um, who doesn't really want the ball to score with. He wants to find open players and they think that Holiday can really be a cutter and can defend maybe um, the best perimeter guy on the other team. And now they, they feel like he, this is his optimal state is not someone, you know, floor general, the offense that all that stuff goes to, to Rondo who's more comfortable with that role and, Holiday can really be more aggressive um, as just a pure scorer. Yeah, no, that I, I think I think that definitely makes sense in theory. Um, you know, it'll, I would have I would have <laughs> rather no. I mean, it does. I mean, it, you can under you can see the logic behind it uh, to a degree. I mean, I, I think you know you, you need Rondo from a New Orleans standpoint. You need Rondo to play like he did during the playoffs, not during most of the year, which is probably a Exactly. You're really leaning a lot on a guy you're paying one year and about $4 million. I mean, it's just a lot to put on Rajon Rondo. And they were really high on him, but it's because they kind of had to be. They didn't have a lot of options for that spot. And that's kind of the best way to look at this whole team, right? It's a team that that, – it's a team that that needs a lot of things to go right in a lot of spots. You know, there's a lot of – there's a lot of – like if it – you can see if it all works – how it could really work, but there's, it's, it's, I don't want to say a house of cards, but it's, it's a, it's a, it's a a structure that's pretty flimsy and it's going to be tough for them to keep everything going the way it needs to. It's all, I feel like it's always that way with this team and it's because they've made so many mistakes at the top. Uh, When you pay Drew Holiday $25 million, you don't have a lot of room and to pay other guys. And then when you make a mistake on Amarashik, you make a mistake on Alexis Agensa, you've just overpaid guys. And so you've squeezed yourself into finding and what Dell Demps is actually really good at is finding those under the radar guys. He signed Ian Clark for the minimum, which is a great deal for a backup point guard for that. Right. Um, they're paying Solomon Hill though $12 million and he's hurt and he's certainly not worth that anyway. So they end up in these positions where they're, they're, they're really counting on best case scenario with so many guys, but they're, they do a nice job of finding these, these, uh, you know, these kind of diamonds in the rough. It's just you're so reliant on them. They're not your, you know, 11th guy. They're your sixth guy or your fifth guy. And that becomes really difficult um, as the season goes along that once you get an injury or two, you are super reliant on guys that you've, you know, kind of mined for rather than guys that, that are reliable NBA starters. Right. And let's let's assume that, that Rondo and Holiday have the point guard duties for the vast majority of the time. Um, even if they start together, I'm sure Hadi will get time with himself on the ball. Um, that that leaves the, the the two and three spots open for a, re- a real disparate group of guys. You got Tony Allen, you got Ian Clark, you got Jordan Crawford, uh, you got Dante Cunningham who could play some three. Uh, obviously, Hill is hurt. Um, you got Darius Miller, each one more. There's there's a lot of guys that they have to Alvin Gentry has to try to plug into those spots. What do you think the most likely rotation is there on the wing? Which I think, to your point, they need a lot of shooting, and that, that's really the thing that you look at with the team is probably the biggest question mark in terms of just personnel is what they're going to exactly do with those spots. Sure, and and it really will based on talking to to Gentry and talking to Dell. It's going to depend a lot night to night of who they're playing um, because there are going to be some nights where they can go a little smaller and play each one more alongside Holiday and Rondo when they need to add that shooting. And then other nights, um, they're going to need to play Tony Allen there because they really need a, a dose of defense. And then other nights, is going to be Dante Cunningham uh, in that three spot. I think you're going to see a lot of minutes where Ian Clark 
uh, and Etwan Moore in the backcourt, and you're going to keep Cousins on the floor, that kind of thing, or you're going to see Rondo play along Et- alongside Etwan, that kind of thing. They're always going to have Davis or Cousins on the floor together. Right. So you're going to have to that that rotation. They really like Etwan more. They think he's going to he will play a lot of minutes. The question is going to be. Who plays kind of the end of the first quarter with Davis and who plays the beginning of the second quarter with Cousins? And that'll be how, you know, that'll evolve as the season goes along. Right. But Etwan Moore is a nice fit for both of those spots. I could see him kind of filling that role either way. And Ian Clark's a nice backup point guard to have in that spot. The question is, who do you want Rondo paired with, Davis or with Cousins? Right. No, that and that'll be that'll be interesting to see. My guess is it'll be cousins, given they they've already got some chemistry together. But um, that's just that's just a guess on on my end. Um, and that, that all kinds of bring that all brings us kind of back to the the main question about this team. I mean, obviously, cousins has got one year left on his deal. You know, whether he stays or goes is really the fundamental question for this team going forward. Because if he stays, you could probably have a better chance to keep Davis. If you don't, you probably got to start looking at maybe trading Davis and blowing things off completely because it's hard to see him sticking around. And and that that leads to what do you what do you see as the future for um, for Dell Demps and, and Alvin Gentry as the GM and the coach of this team? It's been a in battle a couple of years. Obviously, the ownership situation is pretty murky. Um, but but what do you what do you think are uh, the long term outlook for those guys, both for this season and, and potentially beyond that? Everybody's on the last year of their deal, so. Oh, uh, Cousins on the last year of his deal, Gentry's on the last year of his deal, Demp's on the last year of his deal. So it, it's it's all or nothing. And and they sent out and, and Tim, I don't know if you got it. Uh, you know, they had I'd spoken to those guys about you know who when were they going to decide whether or not Gentry and Demp's are coming back for this year, right? And essentially in like mid May they sent out an endorsement that was yep. like the most tepid endorsement yep. in the yep. history of time. Really was. It was like we have a coach. Like, it was basically we have a coach and we have a GM for next season. Period. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Period. <laughs> it's like we don't think they're good. We don't think they're great. <laughs> we don't. We don't have any faith in them. If they win, they're here. If they're not, they're gone. And right. it's like that was it. It was like very straightforward that this is not like this is it. Uh, if they're not good this year, and shoot, if they're not good by Christmas, um, they could be gone. Right. So. And and you're right that DeMarcus Cousins will really sort of dictate the future of all of this. If this experiment works where they traded Buddy Heald and a couple of guys who they, you know, never really had any faith in and a first-round pick. Right. And they got back a guy who's essentially a rental. Right. Then they're really in trouble. Right. Um, and now – but if not, if they get Cousins and Davis, this is a playoff pairing. You can see them growing together. Then all of a sudden there's a brand-new lease on life. This is a team that's a that can contend at least to be you know this franchise really isn't looking to win championships to be perfectly honest right they are just trying to be they're trying to be relevant yeah and they have not been interesting right Tim they've won one playoff series since they moved to New Orleans in two thousand two right one and it is they are completely irrelevant in the state in the region they just they need to win at least at some level uh, um, to get some kind of relevancy in the market and uh that's what they got to do this year and so if they can do that and they can have two superstars in this market it all of a sudden becomes a viable product and that's what this is all about right now and if they don't they got to blow it up and i don't see how anthony i mean they don't they don't want to trade anthony davis they don't want to move Anthony. they love anthony davis he is everything to them uh but you're right that will be the conversation starter is if Dempsey and Gentry are gone, if Cousins is gone, 
then you've got this one superstar with a brand new organization behind and, Right, and with two years left on his deal, and that's, that's time to trade a guy like that. Yeah, and I'm sure the new GM will want to do that because that's the only piece he will have at his disposal. Right. Yeah, no, so, it'll be, it'll it's be really all or nothing. <laughs> it, it really is. It, 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 it's going to make for a fascinating season. I look forward to your coverage of it. So, uh, like I said, this is coming out a little bit into training camp. So, uh, if you can, Scott, just uh, thanks for doing this and let people know where they can follow you on Twitter. And if you've got anything uh, coming here the first week or so of camp that, that you want people to check out. Uh, sure. You can always uh, follow me at Scott D. Kushner, Scott D. K. U. S. H. N. E. R. And uh, we'll have. Uh, Every day of Pelicans practice, uh, we'll have, we'll have it covered. And, uh, and any more pictures with uh, Demarcus Cousins and Juvenile, I'll make sure to put those up there as well. I mean, I mean, who who doesn't like that? So, uh, <laughs> hey, thanks a lot for the time. I really appreciate it, and best of luck. I'll talk to you soon. Absolutely, Tim. Thanks so much. All right, Jeff. Thanks for coming on, man. I appreciate it. Uh, pretty pretty interesting um, couple of weeks for the Spurs here to start training camp. Usually a team that doesn't have any drama around it, uh, just goes about its business, does its thing. Uh, you know, we'd recorded a, a you know an initial pot about them before the season started, and you know, kind of talked about the questions surrounding guys like Pau Gasol and Marcus Aldridge and where the team was at. But you know, then as training camp starts, the the Spurs announced that Kawhi Leonard is out for the entire preseason with uh, Tendi tendinopathy in his right quad, which I had to look up what tendinopathy meant when they announced it, and uh, didn't announce the time plan for his return and don't seem to have really given any information since then. So uh, I guess what, from, you know, from your perspective covering the team every day, what is kind of the latest uh, vibe around them about Kawhi and how concerned uh, are the Spurs that this is something that could really hamper him this year, which would obviously be a a huge blow to their efforts to try to get back to the Western Conference Finals again. Yeah, it's been a weird kind of uh, exercise in trying to figure out what the heck happened, what's going on. You know, is this an, is this an injury that occurred over the summer? We'll know it's something he's been dealing with a while. It's, it's an overuse injury. It's just, you know, he's overused that part of his body. Um, and so they just shut him down. I mean, if, it, if the problem is overuse, let's just not have him use it at all. So they shut him down for the whole preseason, but there's been no, like, there's no no timetable. I mean, I think everyone just kind of assumes he'll be ready to go opening day, um, which is going to create some other interesting issues that we could talk about later if you want. But, um, you know, I, I haven't heard anything to suggest that he's not going to be ready before when the games count. But so far they have not wanted to put him in any preseason game whatsoever. Um, the next time we talk to Greg Popovich, which would be here in the next couple of days, they're, they're off today as we're recording this podcast. I do want to ask him if he plans on playing Kawhi in the preseason finale. Like, if there's any chance he plays in the preseason finale. Um, but as of now, you know, they, they haven't indicated that they want to put him in harm's way at all. Um, the, the thing that struck me, though, is, is it's an injury he was dealing with last, going back to last year, apparently is what, is what Pop has said. And, um, you know, if he was playing with this last year, he was still pretty good playing with it. So <laughs> yes, I, I don't. I, I don't know that it's like at this point. I don't. I just this may this might be my vibe, me personally. At this point, I don't feel like it's something that's going to derail their whole season. I think it's just something they're um, kind of erring on the side of caution about. And there is like a like a two percent conspiratorial part of me that thinks 
Um, a big part of it is just get Kawhi out of the equation for the preseason so LaMarcus Aldridge can get his confidence back and get a bunch of shots and be the center of, uh, of the offense for a while and maybe get in a rhythm going into the season. There's a little part of me that thinks that, thinks that is um, part of the deal, too. And if nothing else, it's been a side effect of Kawhi Leonard not being here. Yeah, that's interesting, and I do want to get to that. The other, the other conspiratorial aspect that we, you know, we've discussed privately is that, you know, is there any chance that the Spurs are using this as a way to lay the groundwork for, you know, being able to rest Kawhi kind of whenever they please during the season? I mean, if, if you say a guy has, you know, a diseased tendon in his leg and it's a chronic injury, well, then anytime you want to sit him, it's kind of hard to argue with that. Um, I mean, do you do you think yeah, that that was, there's a, that was a legitimate just, chance of that as being part of? The I mean, that was here? again, we're we're putting on our tinfoil hats. Here, sure, but sure, sure. It was it was interesting to me that like the it was they announced Kawhi's injury situation, shut him down for the preseason the day after the NBA sends out a league wide memo about rest. You know, they're gonna they're gonna be more a little more forceful about. Um, you know, resting stars and, and stuff like that. So I thought, yeah. I thought those two things, like on back-to-back days, maybe it's a coincidence. But if we want to put on our tinfoil hats and um, and kind of think about the the Spurs as, as we know them playing some of this like 4D chess that they do, um, you know, that's that that that's what's behind it too. Like this is this is going to make it easy easier for them in you know November or December to say, yeah, Kawhi Leonard's out tonight because of a sore quadriceps or whatever. Yeah, no, I, I mean, again, like like you said, it's fun to joke around about this stuff, but if, if there is any team that would be thinking ahead enough to want to try to lay the groundwork for something like this, it is the Spurs. I mean, I think it is a credit to them that they uh, that they are a team that 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 is so uh, completely organized in everything they do that that you would even think that they are they would be thinking that far ahead. Most teams are just trying to get through the day and you know not you know, make sure everybody's ready to go. Whereas, you know, if there is any one team you'd think would maybe be thinking six steps ahead, it would be the Spurs given the amount of success they've had and the way they've they've gone about their business for the past 20 years. Yeah. And I I think mostly the whole thing with Kawhi is just they're, they're being very, 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 very cautious with him because basically he's their whole season. Like if he is somehow incapacitated for, you know, a large chunk of the season or, or if he can't play and be Kawhi, they're just not a very good team. I mean, I don't say that like to be mean or, or uh, you know, overly critical. I mean, that's just kind of how they're built. Like Kawhi carries so much of that load um, that if he is all of a sudden not there for a month or two months, that that especially the way the Western Conference is now, I mean, that that really puts you behind the eight ball. Yeah, and look, I'm not even 100 percent sure they're going to be that good anyway, at least by Spurs standards. I mean, you know, yeah, that's fair. If you if, if you look at the way their summer went. If any other team had re-signed Pau Gasol to a three-year deal, had gone into the season with, you know, Patty Mills was probably at best a change of pace point guard uh, off the bench as easily their best option just from a today standpoint at the point. And, you know, relying pretty heavily on Rudy Gay, a guy who's coming off a short Achilles as their moves of the summer, let alone, you know, setting aside the Kawhi stuff for now, uh, you would look at that team and really have a lot of questions about, the direction they're going in. And because the Spurs are the Spurs and for all the success that they've had, people just kind of are automatically assuming, I think, that they're going to be really good. Um, and I, I mean, I, I know you've gotten a chance to see them. I wanted to talk to you about LaMarcus and the way he's played in the preseason, but is there any part of you that wonders, is this finally the year that things start to 
turn a little bit, at least briefly, in terms of them being an automatic lock to be a 55-win team and a, a you know a top four seed in the West? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, would I would I be shocked if they finished all the top four? No, I wouldn't be shocked. Um, would I be shocked if they're second again? I wouldn't be shocked at that either. Like, like I've seen I've seen first I've seen this first team finish seventh before. I've seen them finish sixth before. Like, it's not unheard of that they have a year like that. But I think the the main thing is is not really what the Spurs did. I mean, they're basically the same team that won. 61 games last year plus Rudy Gay. Like that's still a, that's still a really good team. I think right. what you have to look at is is what everybody else. I think I think that's the kind of context. Like what everybody else in the West did. You know, is that going to be good enough? I mean, it wasn't good enough last year to beat the Warriors. Um, I mean, we can we can argue about whether Kawhi Leonard would have. You know, he got hurt and, and maybe that series goes differently. Maybe it doesn't. But it wasn't good enough last year to beat the Warriors. Now you've got the Rockets adding Chris Paul. Um, you've got Oklahoma City kind of supersizing. You've got uh, you've got some other kind of um, younger up and coming teams adding people. Minnesota that didn't even make the playoffs last year had a chance to be really good. Um, so you put it in context where the Spurs really didn't do much and everybody else did a lot of stuff. And I think that's where people are seeing like, well, maybe they're not the second best team in the West anymore. I don't know. I got to see how it all how it all kind of plays out. And you know that's kind of what I wrote for our that's this is kind of what I wrote for our season preview. Like it it felt like they were running in place all season or all summer um, in regards to everybody else in the West. But it's, it has most to, most, mostly to do with what everybody else did. Like if you if, if you were a basketball fan and like went in a coma in 2012 and woke up in 2017 and someone told you, hey, the Spurs have Kawhi Leonard, he's an MVP candidate, they have LaMarcus Aldridge, they have Rudy Gay, they have Cal Gasol, Tony Parker's still playing, Mata Ginobili's still playing, all these names, you think, well, our team is going to win the title. and But the league has changed so much since then with Golden State doing what they're doing and every it seems like every other uh, all-star in the league trying to play with each other. That, that that team, in context of this Western Conference, doesn't look as uh, daunting on paper. I think they're still going to be a really good team. I think I got them down. Like they had to, I had to predict their win total. I've got them down to 58 wins. Uh, but, you know, that, I, I think it's very fair to say that they don't look like they're any closer to Golden State, and they probably look closer to the rest of the pack um, than they did last year. Yeah, I mean, I think it that's is very fair to say. Yeah, I know, and it, you're right too, because like that's the other way to look at it, right? Like the one way to look at it is like, what is this team doing? The other way to look at it is, that, well, what are they doing? They won 61 games last year. They added Rudy Gay. They, you know, they swapped out some spare parts like Joffrey Vern for David Lee uh, and lost Dwayne Dedman, but like they didn't you know, lose any other main pieces from a team that won 61 games. So why would they be significantly worse? And it's not even like they were incredibly lucky. They're, you know, their they're expected one loss for a point differential was 60 wins. So it's not like they were, you know, say the Celtics last year were five or six games better than their expected one loss. They were supposed mm-hmm. to be a 60 win team and they were. So it, it is, it is really, um, it is really interesting to kind of look at them. And I, their, their season is going to be, is going to be, you know, a lot more interesting to watch, I think, than than a lot of people typically look at from a uh, from the Spurs. And and you mentioned you mentioned Marcus. He's to me a big part of that. You know, obviously it's been an interesting uh, couple of years uh, since he signed as you know the biggest free agent on the market in 2015. Um, you know, there was talk going into last season he could potentially be on the block at some point. Then the Spurs won 60 games. That wasn't really an option. There was talk this summer he could potentially be on the block at some point. That didn't happen. He's back again. 
Um, you, you mentioned how well he's played in the preseason, how he's been able to get a lot of touches and, and get in a rhythm. Uh, what is kind of the general mood in San Antonio right now about LaMarcus and his fit within the team and the organization going into the season? You know, he, he and Pop actually had a sit-down about those very topics, um, either coming out of last season or coming into this. It was actually coming out of last season. He and Pop actually had a sit-down to talk about it. You know, LaMarcus kind of – I don't want to – I'll call, aired some complaints or, or concerns, we'll call them concerns, about his fit in the offense. And Pop kind of, there was some dialogue, and Pop kind of agreed with him and um, said, let's see what we can do to help you out a little bit. And and this this preseason, they've, they've tweaked some things to, to work on some spacing, to get him some, some more comfortable looks uh, that he's more comfortable with. They've asked him to, you know, instead of almost picking Pops and stuff, instead of that being a 20-footer, let's make it a 24-footer. Um, and that has more to do with spacing for everybody else. So that's part of the, the thing that they've been working on. Um, and he's been really good this preseason. I mean, every, every, every game, he, you know, he's not putting up monster numbers because the preseason, you don't play, you know, starters minutes really in the preseason. But every game, he's he's more demonstrative. He's he's more, you can just, it's a body language thing almost. You can just see in his body language that he's confident. He looks like the guy, um, at least from two years ago, and, and at times he looks like the Portland Marcus, um, the way he's been playing. Uh, but again, I think what everyone in San Antonio is wondering is how will that look when Kawhi Leonard gets back? You know, you're putting Kawhi Leonard back on the floor with him because Kawhi Leonard is such a high usage player um, that it just it just naturally takes away touches from everyone else, including Lamarcus. And I, I think what I found watching Lamarcus up close the last couple of years, he's such a rhythm player. Like if you get him going early and you get him touches early and he sees the ball going early, he's going to have a good game. If if you know, if he's got one or two shots in the first quarter, you might lose him for the whole game. He's just never going to. It's it's hard to get him a couple shots early, and then in the third quarter, say, okay, go score five times in a row. He just he, for right. some reason he doesn't seem built built that way. So in the preseason, you know, they've been, you know, he's been getting six, seven, eight shots in the first quarter and getting a rhythm, and he looks really good the whole game through. Um, what's that going to be like when Kawhi comes back? Is there a way to make those two mesh? And I think that's kind of been. Um, that's kind of been the issue for for two seasons now is how to get um, your two best scorers to to mesh on the on the uh, you know to mesh in the offense. And by the way, that's not a unique problem to the Spurs. I mean, I think we're gonna we're gonna find out how how is uh you know how's Oklahoma City gonna handle that problem this year? How how are those guys gonna mesh? How are how are uh, Chris Paul and James Harden gonna mesh in Houston? Like it works for some guys, for some teams it works, and it doesn't for others. I remember it took it took the uh, Miami Heat super team you know, at least half a season to kind of feel like they knew what they were doing. So, you know, I don't think it's unique that you have two guys that are that need the ball in their hands and need their shots to kind of struggle to to um, fit. But I, I think there's some cautious optimism about LaMarcus right now. I think we have to see what happens. You know, where, is, where does this thing sit in January, February? How's it looking then? I think that's where you start to judge it a little bit better. Well, yeah, and the interesting thing about that is that, you know, Kawhi took as, you know, he's taking a big leap every year and, and you know, going into that season a couple of years ago, he thought, all right, LaMarcus can be the primary scorer and Kawhi can keep progressing towards being that kind of a guy. And then, uh, you know, Kawhi all of a sudden became a guy that was scoring 25 plus a game. And all of a, you know, that kind of upset the apple cart a little bit. And like you said, it's been pretty tough for the Spurs ever since then to really adjust to, uh, to make that fit, which, you know, to, which I think you make a great point that, you know, between Houston and Oklahoma City and San Antonio and uh, Minnesota, things are, uh, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of teams that find themselves in a similar boat there. Yeah. And it's a chicken and the egg thing, too, because you look at it and you go, well, maybe LaMarcus has struggled to fit in how we thought he would. 
but they won 100, I think it's 128 games in two years since he's been here. And a lot of, you know, playing how they're playing. So do you want to, you know, are you trying to fix what's not broken a little bit? Like if you're, if you're doing all this to get LaMarcus going, are now you taking away from, you know, <laughs> Kawhi, who's been the guy that, that has been kind of, you know, the guy that's kept you as the second best team in the, in the Western Conference this whole thing. There's such a balance there between we need Kawhi to still be, do what he's doing, while LaMarcus also getting what he needs too. Like it's, it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard line to walk. And it needs, and the thing about LaMarcus is he needs a good year. I mean, the Spurs need him to have a good year, and he needs to have a good year too. Um, you know, because he's, he's got the contract situation coming up. He can opt out. Um, next season, and it, you know, if he wants to opt out, uh, he's going to need to have a good season to get that money back. If if he has a poor season, I think he's going to have to just opt back in, and that's you know, uh, that's 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 kind of a that's kind of a double whammy because now he now you've got a player that's had a had two down years in a row, and he's opting back in for twenty million dollars. You can't do anything with him. Like but like you want the first the market to be great for this year and for the future, and the market needs to be great this year for this year and the future. Like if he has a poor year, I don't know what he does contract wise. Next year, I, I, I mean, even if he wants to opt out, it, you know, if he doesn't have a great season, I don't see him getting this money back. So no, I to, yeah, no, I know. agree. It's a fi- it's a it's a pretty fascinating um, it's a pretty fascinating situation. Uh, you know, it really it really is. Um, you know, it, there certainly isn't any lack of motivation on either side. Uh, yeah, know, everybody, it should be everybody's best interest for him to be very good. So uh, you know, that'll be that'll be interesting to see you. Uh, I'd gloss over it earlier, but, um, you know, with Tony Parker, you know, still trying to come back from his own quad injury uh, during the playoffs, I know his recovery has been quicker than expected. I still don't think he's going to be ready to play that soon, though maybe you have different uh, information on that than I do. But what 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 kind of is the state of the point guard position right now for the Spurs, and, and how much of a load is, you know, a second-year guy like Deontay Murray going to have to lift to, to, to be a significant part of what they're doing this year? Yeah, Tony is. Uh, the, the timetable has been all over the map for him. Like right when it happened in the playoffs, there were some doctors, some of whom had not seen Tony, but they said like this injury is like catastrophic. Or, like I don't know that he's even going to play again. Period. Whether be himself again. Then you kind of hear, well, maybe January is a good, a good, you know, point, a good timetable. And then all of a sudden, Tony is now talking about, I think I can be back by November. Where it's kind of settled now is because he's. he's, he's He's back and doing stuff on his feet, like he's running and shooting, and he just, the only thing he hasn't done is contact. So it's looking like sometime in November he'll start doing contact drills in practice, and it seems to be if that goes well, he might be back on the floor in December. Now, is he? Uh, what does he look like? I, I, you know, it's hard to imagine he's the same guy that was, um, you know, that you saw in the playoffs last year, which he was. He, had, he was playing his best basketball of the year last year. When he went down, I don't know that at 35 you come back from this injury and you're the same. I, I, I'm pretty sure that you're not. So, to get to your question, they're going to need Dejounte Murray to be really, really good this year. I mean, he's he's going to be the opening day starter. I think we've we've established that he started every preseason game so far. Um, started off a little rough, a little ragged. Um, they played they played a, a home and home with Sacramento to open the preseason, and then De'Aaron Fox kind of kind of ate his lunch a little bit. Since then, they played Denver. Um, they've played, um, I can't remember who they played, like Orlando. <laughs> and he's, he's had <laughs> they are a very forgettable teams, the, so that's okay. <laughs> he's, he's, had his two, he's had his two best games in the last, in the last uh, two preseason outings. And he's, he's a guy with just worlds of potential. Like he's, he's 6'5 and long, and, and you, hear this, you hear different players saying, like when we put DeJounte Murray and Danny Green and Kawhi Leonard 
side by side by side in our defense. Like that's a really long defensive backcourt. Like that's so they're excited about that. Um, he he's he can get into the paint pretty much at will. Uh, it's still still at what does he do when he gets there? And sometimes it's good stuff, and sometimes it's not so good stuff. Um, there's a lot of he's still learning to run the team, be a vocal leader. Um, time and everything a point guard needs to just have a mastery of and it just take experience. Time and score, what play you need to run here, and what you need out of this specific situation, and what you know who needs the ball where, all that stuff. Like it's a hard job. Point guard's a hard job. He's um, basically the equivalent of a of a college junior. He's just turned 21, like right before the start of camp. So it's a lot of a lot of work for him. And we flash, we always flash back around here, you know, to Tony Parker when he was you know, 20, 21 years old and, and kind of thrown in the pressure cooker being Pops starting point guard. And it was rough. I mean, it was it was a lot of growing pains. And then early on, there were a lot of people thinking, like, what is this guy going to be? Like, he, he, like maybe you got to just cut base on this guy. Like, there were a lot of questions about Tony Parker really until about, about 2007 or so. So uh, I think DeJounte Murray is not the same exact kind of point guard as Tony Parker. They're both, they both came in as scoring point guards, though. I mean, that's one thing they're also having to learn is, is how to be more than just the, you know, do more than your instinct, which is to put the ball in the hole. Um, but there's they're different point guards, but I think they're in similar situations where um, there's there's a lot of potential there. I mean, I've, but but there's going to be a lot of growing pains going forward, and and it's going to be part of the growth. That they've they've basically signaled, you know, while Tony Parker is out, we're going to play this guy, and if it costs us games, I know it costs us games, but that's part of the growth for him is he's got to he's got to be good and be bad and learn how to deal with books so that's kind of where they stand I think there there's I mean I, th- I think there's reason to be hopeful because he, he's probably the most uh athletic guy they've, they've had at that position in a long long time um but he's also very young and so I think that's that's kind of where you have to just take him with a grain of salt a little bit yeah no I think that I think that's a good summation and he is a guy that when you watch him play like I remember watching him play against the Cavs last year on TV uh, and right. you, you just uh, athleticism just pops off the screen. He does stuff that you you see and you go, wow, like, this guy could be really good. Uh, and then you see a lot of and plays he, like you know, where he just looks like a real rookie, like he did in the Western Conference in the semifinals against the Rockets when he was playing and and you know got yanked out almost immediately in a couple of games because he just was making mistake after mistake after mistake as you'd expect a 19 year old rookie point guard to make. Yeah, the one thing I've kind of noticed about him though is he's not the, the, he's not scared of the moment. I think that's a big thing too. And, and you mentioned that Cleveland game. You know, you're on the road against the defending uh, NBA champions last year. Tony Parker's out. Pop says, "Here's the ball. You know, go 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 run the team and guard Kyrie Irving." And he had he had probably his best game of the year in that game. And the Spurs won a tight game on the road at Cleveland. Um, Western Conference semifinals. I think the first game. I think the first game he had to start when Tony Parker got hurt, um, you know, Patrick Beverly kind of ate him up a little bit, as you'd probably expect. Like, that's, that's a high-pressure, high-energy situation. And uh, I, don't think, I don't think it's a situation you're really ready for until you're thrown into it. And the other part of it is he hadn't played DeJounte that last year. Like, the whole end of the season, the last month or six weeks, he was dealing with a groin injury. He really hadn't played, wasn't expecting to play um, – in the playoffs really much at all. So you go from that, and as much as you want to try to keep your stuff ready, you go from that to all of a sudden, okay, all of a sudden now you're starting on the road in the Western Conference semifinals against Patrick Beverly, one of the most ferocious, tenacious defensive point guards in the NBA. Um, that was a tough learning game for him. I think as the playoffs went along, he didn't, he, they, kind of, they 
They didn't start him every game after that. I think he made maybe one more starting play after that. They got a lot of runs. After the playoffs went along, I think he sort of started to find his sea legs a little bit. And uh, especially in times of that Golden State series, even though the Spurs lost, he looked like he belonged a little bit. I think there was a lot of optimism about him going into the summer. And then he had kind of a weird summer where he had these nagging injuries again. He wasn't able to go through all the um, you know the, the summer workouts they do. He went to summer league and he played like two games between the two summer leagues and wasn't really that good in any of them. And he had the first two preseason games where he didn't look that great. And so I think some fans are just kind of starting to get a little – uh, you know, anxious about him, like, can we get Tony back faster kind of thing. Um, the last two games, he's, he's looked better. And, you know, I think I think on the whole, they'll be able to survive with him, um, you know, starting the season. And they still look at him as, like, uh, you know, their point guard in the future. Like, he's going – if all goes to plan, he's going to be a huge part of their, like, Kawhi Leonard core going forward once Tony is completely retired. I mean, they, they're really high on him. Um, it's just a matter of, of getting him experience and playing time and – Working on his, his, the other thing is working on his jump shot. That's, it's not reliable. Um, basically, he scores on floaters. Um, so, much like Tony Parker used to, um, that used to be all Tony's arsenal too, and they had to work with his Tony on his jump shot, and it worked out okay. Uh, but all those things, like, like if he gets all that stuff together, you combine that with just his size, his length, his athleticism, uh, they're really excited about him being uh, a key part of their core going forward. Yeah, no, there's a lot to like, and and like I said, you you could see games, you know, like what really like what Manu, what 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 Manu Ginobili said on media day was, we we don't know if he's going to be an all star now or in five years, but you know they they like his potential, um, but they're prepared for this to be kind of a, a learning year for him as much as he gets. But they like they there are people within the organization that see him as a, a potential all star or all star type once he matures and, and grows into his body and gets that experience and stuff. Like, they're really high on him. It's just he's so young, and he played, he played like, 30 games last year. Yeah, I mean, he's a, he, was a, he, was, he came out after his freshman year. He was a young friend. I mean, it's just there's a lot, a lot of learning to do. But like you said, the potential is very high. And if there is any team that's going to, uh, to be able to develop him into something, it would be that uh, – it would be Spurs, given their, their history. So it'll be interesting to watch. Jeff, appreciate the time, man. Thanks for doing this. Uh, but before you go, let people know where they can follow you on social media and if you've got anything, uh, if you've got anything to uh, plug coming up here. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter. Do people know where to find me on Twitter? Is it easy to find people on Twitter? Or do I have to give a whole spiel? Just search me on Twitter. I'm on Twitter all the time. <laughs> I'm like I'm like the smartass in the corner of Twitter. <laughs> uh, yeah, we got our we got our big season preview coming out um, this Sunday too. Um, a lot of good stuff in there. I kind of mentioned what I wrote for it, but there'll be other other writers at the Express News will be chiming in with their uh, stellar work as always. So. People can check out that. Uh, you know, you can, eventually that will find its way to the World Wide Web as well. So you can find that at expressnews.com at some point. Um, and we also have a blog at uh, spursnation.com, which is kind of uh, still under the umbrella of our multi-platform news organization at the Express News. So you can find kind of just quick hitting updates there throughout the day as Spurs go about the business. So there's a lot of places to find me and my colleagues in our work. Well, there you go. Nice job. Uh, nice job pumping everybody up, man. There you go. Thank you. <laughs> All right, but thanks for doing this, man. And I'll see you soon. No problem. All right. Thanks again to Tim, Jonathan, Chris, Scott, and Jeff for doing the podcast. 
Really appreciate all those guys. They're all good follows on their teams. Give them a, give them a follow on Twitter and social media and check them out. They all do really interesting stuff that I follow along with all year long, so make sure you do as well. As for me, you can find me on Twitter at Tim Bontemps, on Facebook at Tim Bontemps NBA. You can find me in the pages of the Washington Post or on our website at WashingtonPost.com sports. Please go find the podcast wherever you can get it. Give us a five-star rating and review. It's all very appreciated. You can find the podcast either on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn, Radio Public, or iHeartRadio. So be sure to go find it anywhere you can, any of those spots. Give us a five-star rating and review, please. Appreciate it. Thank you to Glenn Yoder and the Western States for the theme music for the podcast. Uh, they do a great job. They're a fun band. I've seen them in person. Be sure to go check out their music online. Uh, again, thanks for listening to this. We'll be back tomorrow uh, for the season opener. Uh, I'll be in Cleveland, and because of that, we're going to do the Central Division preview last. Uh, so we'll have five guys on talking about the Central Division, including the Eastern Conference champion Cleveland Cavaliers, who open up against Kyrie Irving and the Boston Celtics. So it should be a lot of fun. So thanks again for listening, and we'll talk to you all again soon.